Lahu. Damashe. Hana hayau. Le ahudo. Dat marlan. Ina natu mashicha. Bara de haleha. Anea na. Good Ashlam. I'm Kevin Yingling. Uh, it's valuable, it's valuable that we can share on a very important matter, the medical aspects of crucifixion. Pastor Lemming, I deeply appreciate you. Uh, I know the church loves you, and I value the invitation to be here. It is... Um, it is very encouraging to see so many people here this evening. I find it takes a lot to break away from the chaos, the confusion, the franticness, the challenges, the conflicts, the demands of the world that we live in to be anywhere like 7 o'clock on a Thursday night. I think there is a power, or, or should I say, I think there is a pile of world-centered stuff that tends to distract us 
And I will say tonight that this pile of worldly stuff also has, over time, kind of distracted us from the understanding of crucifixion. It has caused it to wane in our thoughts. It's kind of drowned it out, its importance in our faith experience. I want to say that your keen, your keen interest to set aside these worldly things and to be here tonight to align yourself with God's word and God's intention is really commendable. And I'm, I'm very encouraged for you and, and for us. I'm going to make an early diagnosis. You know us doctors, we're prone to diagnoses, right? I see three groups in this audience, um, and perhaps even online. The first is, um, I know that some of you are very likely to know what I'm going to say. In fact, um, some of you all may even be able to say it better than I say it. And yet you're here to draw close to realign yourself, to level set yourself with what crucifixion means, and I, I welcome you. The second group that's likely here tonight um, have never focused on this topic. They've never really drawn close to it. Um, and I am uh, encouraged that you're compelled to be here tonight to share as we walk forward, and you're welcome tonight. And the third group of my group diagnoses is there are some that are present here tonight that are unsure of it all. Um, in fact, I think that there may be some here that don't really know about the Son of Man and the Son of God and death on a cross and, and suffering like we're going to talk about tonight, and you're actually exploring all this. And you're welcome tonight. In fact, you may be more welcome than every one of the other groups. Now, what qualifies me to share with you all about crucifixion. I'm a Christian. I am educated and trained as a physician. I strive to base my life decisions and my occupational decisions on the evidence. In my work, I study the evidence. I analyze the patient, and I prescribe a course of action or treatment. Tonight, this practice is going to be important because I have read the evidence. I've sought the insights of many wise people like Pastor Lemming and Pastor Yates and Pastor McClay, and I've listened to their preaching and their, and their leadership. I've read the eyewitness accounts. I've been convicted by the Holy Spirit. I believe, I accept, I know Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. Now, I'm going to set this setting a little bit further, and I'm going to read this. Now, Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the 12 disciples aside on the road and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify, and the third day he will rise again by the eyewitness Matthew, Matthew 20, 17 through 19. Now, we're going to take a brief journey of about 30 or 40 minutes 
You will hear me talk about things that I think are very natural. You will hear me talk about things that are quite unnatural. What could be natural about crucifixion? You will hear me talk about things that are predetermined. And you will clearly hear me talk about things that are spiritual beyond the nature or the natural things that we think about as we walk through this earth. Some have said that it's too harsh. Some have said that it's too real. Some have said that the words of anguish are too much. I would say the sufferings of Christ on the cross is really important to realize. Now, we'd also might say, some might be here tonight to say this is Monday or Maundy Thursday. Well, that's to be a celebration of the Last Supper, as Christ would have recognized it at the Passover feast. Uh, you might be thinking about the upper room and the activities of the, of the upper room, and I heard Pastor talk about the washing of the feet. That's all true, and we are here. It is a time for communion that we'll share in a few minutes. But let me say that perhaps like you, when I come to communion, I am reminded how really imperfect I am. I take the bread and the juice and I close my eyes. And at that moment, I'm aware that God has known me from the beginning. In fact, God's word says he knew me in my mother's womb. And I know that he finds me unique and special. I know that he is closer to me than any friend that I have in this world. And yet, I am imperfect. I'm sinful. I'm wayward. And holding the symbols of Christ's broken body for me and the blood shed for me for my forgiveness in that moment, for me, I, I propose to you, I come into the presence, I commune with an awesome, holy, creator, God. And I look forward to sharing communion with you in a few minutes. Now I'm going to further go on tonight, and I'm going to show a slide of the city, and it may not project very well. From this slide, I would just like you to picture that in the bottom left-hand side is the upper room where the activities of the Last Supper took place. And from there, you'll see a map that draws, it says number one, and you're walking towards the Garden of Gethsemane just to give you a feel for what the journey and pathway of Christ was that evening. Then you move on to the things that are marked two and three, and that's the praetorium, and, and you're, that's where Pilate says he doesn't have any charge against him and sends him to Herod, that's three. Then he sends him back to Pilate, that's four. And then he's scourged, and then he walks to the streets where he's mocked, and then he comes to the site of Calvary and the actual crucifixion. And I use that just to orient your minds that we're going to be walking through those various places. But I want to start in the garden, and I'm going to read to you all, once I get my glasses, I'm going to read to you all where this uh, passage starts. This is in the book of Mark, chapter 14, 32 through 39. And they came to a place which was named Gethsemane, and he saith to his disciples, Sit ye here while I shall pray. And he taketh with him Peter 
and James and John and began to be sore amazed and to be very heavy and saith unto them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful unto death. Tarry ye here and watch. And he went forward a little and fell on the ground and prayed, If it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but thou wilt. And he cometh and he findeth them sleeping. And he cometh and findeth them sleeping and said unto Peter, Simon, sleepest thou? Couldst not thou watch one hour? Watch ye and pray. Lest ye enter in temptation, the spirit truly is ready, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed and spake the same words. We're going to start there for our discussion tonight. Now that's an interesting slide. Uh -huh. Thank you. Now, what I want to point out here is that this uh, particular passage is from Luke 22:44, and I'll just call your attention a second to the fact that Luke is the physician disciple. Not only is he the eyewitness, he's the physician disciple. And what does the physician disciple say? And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Now, I'm at an important point in my life where my grandchildren are old enough to actually argue with me. And, and it was also a disappointing time when my children were old enough to argue with me. But I want to point out something here because some people might say that that's a metaphor. My grandchildren might tell me that they've learned what a metaphor is. I would argue to, to everyone that this is far from a metaphor. This is a description of hemohydrosis. Hemohydrosis is hemorrhage into the sweat glands and the skin becomes fragile and tender. What is Luke trying to describe here? I just went over what's happening in the garden. Jesus has walked forward and prayed to his Father about the situation. And upon him is the sins of the entire world. Upon him he knows exactly why he was sent. He knew he was... He was in an anguish that we cannot completely understand. And that anguish inside of his body and understanding what was going to happen, he knew, he knew this would lead to crucifixion. And in that moment, that power of that moment, real blood came through his skin. And his skin was made tender in a way just like it's described. This is the first real anguish that Christ suffered for each one of us. And picture for a moment as I read that the disciples, his chosen disciples, his closest disciples, the eyewitness to the entire account, fall asleep. How lonely it must be there. How abandoned one must feel. The Son of Man must feel in that moment, the anguish of that moment. I have a feeling we're out of sequence, but now we are back on sequence. 
Now I'm going to spend a minute to talk about the trials only to sequence the events of that evening for you all. At midnight, Jesus is arrested at Gethsemane, taken to Caiaphas. At 1 a.m. to daybreak, Jesus was tried before Caiaphas. That's the political Sanhedrin. And as we heard shouted from that video, he was found guilty of blasphemy. The guards blindfolded Jesus, spat on him, struck him in the face and with their fists. And at daybreak, Jesus was tried before the Pharisees and Sadducees, the religious Sanhedrin, found guilty of blasphemy, a crime punishable by death, described by the eyewitness Matthew. I want you to focus on the guards blindfolded him, spat on him, struck him in the face, and with their fists. This is the first time that Christ suffered physical punishment by another human. Think about how demeaning, how mocking it would be. The Savior, the one without blemish, is being treated that way by those people in that situation. I've read descriptions where they would blindfold them and they would taunt the individual and they would hit them and they would jeer them like, if, if you can tell us which one hit you, we won't hit you again. And they put the blindfold back on and they'd hit him again. And remind ourselves that during this time, he's also suffered the hemohydrosis. He had the, the fragile skin. It would be around these trials and these times in which the crown of thorns would be placed on his scalp. And it would be pushed down on his scalp. You saw an excellent depiction in that video of what that crown would look like. Now picture your skins in that situation and you're being abused and mocked by those people around you and the crown is being pushed down on your scalp. Think of the anguish, the pain, and suffering that Christ was going through. Next slide. Well, there had to be two trials. There had to be the Jewish trial and the Roman trial. The Romans had to give permission for execution. Pilate could find no basis for the legal charges against Jesus. The crowd persistently demanded crucifixion. Pilate, as you remember, granted the crowd's demands. Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. You know, during this time, you would remember that Pilate didn't want to have anything to do with him, and his wife actually comes to him and says that she's had a dream or a vision and is, is troubled by that and asks him not to go through with it. And he walks back out, and the crowd jeers and demands that it be Christ and not one of the others. And Pilate washes his hands of it and sends him on to be scourged. This comes from the eyewitness Luke. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Now picture for a minute, this is the prophet Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah walked on earth hundreds of years before Christ suffered crucifixion. Influenced by the Holy Spirit, God speaks through Isaiah and tells us exactly what's going to happen. I find that incredibly powerful. I find that incredibly powerful that God is in control and understands everything. Not just about Christ and Christ's journey, not just through the prophet Isaiah, but for me in my life as well. So what is this process called scourging? Flogging was the legal preliminary to the Roman execution. An instrument was a short whip. Inside of those leather thongs were attached iron balls and sharp pieces of sheep bone. The back, the buttocks, and legs were flogged by two soldiers called lictors. And the scourging continued until the victim was sh just short of collapse or death. Now picture for a minute that two full-grown men 
have in their hands this leather device. You saw a picture of it in the video. With all these pieces tied into it and with the full force of their body against the body of that person, the victim, they strike the body. They don't just strike the body. They then pull laterally so that whatever penetration those objects had into the skin, it then tears the skin when it goes vertically. And so on one side, there would be that strike. And on the other side, the soldier would strike. And on the other side, the soldier would strike. And on the other side, the soldier would strike. Now, it's written in the commentaries of that time that according to the Jewish tradition, that you're only allowed to strike the body, only allowed to strike the body, 39 times. 39 times. In that situation, do you think that they didn't do all 39? In fact, the rule was you could do 40, but they stopped at 39, so they didn't exceed that number. But picture now, our Savior, Jesus Christ, the one without blemish, the one that you remember all those teachings and all those things that he's done during his lifetime. And now two soldiers with the full force of their bodies are slashing against that body and slashing against the body and ripping across and ripping across and ripping across. That's the suffering that our Savior Jesus Christ went through. Next slide. This would be a picture of a person tied to a scourging post. You've seen movies and things where perhaps the victim is laid across a rock or other ways in which this would be carried out. This is the whip on the far side. That's the downward striking motion that I described. Next slide. So what would the medical aspects of the scourging be? Repeated forceful blows of the iron balls and leather thongs cutting into the skin and subcutaneous tissues. Eventually, deep lacerations tearing the muscle, producing massive trauma and bleeding. There would be significant blood loss and potentially even shock because of the amount of fluid and volume that is lost. You know, if something like that were to happen, that person would be, in our community would be rushed to the hospital and taken to the intensive care unit. All kinds of things would be done to try to save that person's life. Just trying to put it into perspective, that's what happened at the scourging after Pilate released him to the crowd. Next slide. So what would the status of Jesus be to this point? He would have suffered the hemohydrosis in the garden he would have had the physical and verbal abuse that occurred by the Jews and the Romans. He would have had the lack of food and water and sleep. Remember that the Last Supper and through the night and into the next morning. Severe scourging leading to intense pain and blood loss. The physical condition of Jesus was at least serious and possibly critical. The next slide. What happens at crucifixion? Romans did not invent crucifixion, they perfected it. It was a form of torture or capital punishment designed to produce a slow death and maximal pain and suffering. It was disgraceful. It was cruel. The Roman citizens were protected from crucifixion. So they only did it to the people they thought were the enemy. They only did it to the people they really despised or hated. That's what was happening 
Christ. Next slide. The victim, excuse me, the custom was for the victim to carry the platybulum or the crossbar to the site of crucifixion. The platybulum weighs 75 to 125 pounds, usually placed on the nape of the neck and bounced on the shoulders with the hands tied to the crossbar. Now I'm not talking about a smooth piece of wood like this or like the platform or like the stairs. I'm talking about a rough cut piece of lumber, probably chiseled in place with splinters and all kinds of pieces jagged sticking off of it. And now picture for a moment, Christ has had his back scourged. He's in the state that I just described. And the platybulum, although it could have been the entire cross, that's not clear from the Bible. But you picture in your mind is that the entire cross or the platybulum, and now Christ is asked to walk through the city, being jeered and mocked the whole way, and picture that because of the pain and suffering he's been through, his body would leer to one side, and then it would leer to the other side. It would go to the other side. And each time, that piece of wood or the entire cross would slide to the right. It would slide to the left. It would dig into his back. It would go penetrating into all those areas that have been scourged. Wow. I mean, I... I, my, my being is struck when I try to picture that in my mind as to what Christ went through as he walked through that crowd. The next slide. At the side of crucifixion, the victim is thrown to the ground on his back. Arms are outstretched along the platybulum. His hands were nailed to the crossbar. As you saw in the picture, tapered iron spikes about five to seven inches in length, approximately one centimeter in width, were driven through the proximal portion of the palm. Let's just picture for a minute, you saw those spikes. Long, pointed spikes, metal. You can almost hear, as you did in that video, the pounding of the hammer against the nail. The pounding of the hammer against the nail. Now, the Romans had perfected this. They knew that if you put the spike out here, it would eventually pull and tear and pull and tear and pull and tear through that muscle and the person would fall from the cross. That isn't what they wanted. Maximum cruelty and punishment. So they learned that if you put the nail through here, through the proximal portion of the palm, it would hold because you have seven bones in the bottom of your hand and those seven bones are really important for us to be able to do the things that we do. <coughs> but right there is the median nerve. You may not know the median nerve. You may call that the carpal tunnel nerve. Some of you in this room have probably had carpal tunnel or know somebody had carpal tunnel. When you have pressure on the carpal tunnel or pressure on the median nerve, it has a tingly sensation that goes down your thumb and your middle ring finger in this particular area, not over here, and it's uncomfortable. You don't like it. Now picture for a minute that a metal spike was just driven through the palm of your hand and it severed that nerve or injured that nerve. It is thought that what would happen at that moment is your hand would go into spasm. Your hand would be like a claw, it would go like that. And then that nerve, its origin is in my neck. And so the pain of the severing of the nerve would be like a lightning bolt going all the way to my neck. And from my neck to my hand, with my hands in a spasm, as that nail's driven into the cross, that's what Christ went through. Now you're picturing whether he's nailed to the crossbar or nailed to an entire cross, his hands have just been pounded into that. His hands are like this, and he's got shooting pain going towards his neck. Next slide. 
to be a depiction of such a spike, be a location of such a spike, you'd see the spike go through his hand and down into the wood. Next slide. The arms were fixed to the crossbar, the platinum and the victim were lifted onto the stipes, that'd be the upright part. The feet were usually nailed to the stipes in a similar fashion as the hands. Once the nailing was completed, the titles was attached just above the victim's head. Now picture, whether well, the victim is laying on the ground in the dirt with his hands nailed to the, to the crossbar, or whether he's nailed to the entire cross. If he's nailed to the crossbar, the soldiers jerk him up in the air, and they hold him up high enough in order to set him down on top of the, of the upright part that's sitting in the hole in the ground. And he dangles there. He dangles from that crossbar while they adjust it and put it in place. And then they nail his feet into the cross. Or maybe the other thing that happened is the entire cross was there. That uncut piece of lumber, my back against that having been scourged, my hands have just been nailed into the cross. And now the soldiers just pick up the cross and they slide it along the ground until they get to the hole and they flip it up in the air. And you hang from the cross and you move around and your back bangs against the cross. Then they gather up your feet. They put your feet against the cross. They nail your feet into the cross. That's what Christ went through at crucifixion. Next slide. There would be a picture of the foot over top of the foot nailed into the cross. Next slide. This would be a picture of an individual hanging from the cross. And in order to breathe, you'd have to rotate your hands and push up with your feet pulling against the nails in your hand and pushing against the nail in your feet. And your back would rub up along the cross and you would get just high enough to be able to breathe. Now I'll picture for a second that while I'm talking to you all, while you are sitting here tonight, we're breathing. When we breathe, when we breathe, the muscles in our chest come up, the diaphragm at the bottom of our chest goes down and we're able to take in the air. And in order to exhale, I relax the muscle called the diaphragm and the muscles inside of my chest, and the, ex the air comes out, and I can speak. I speak when I exhale. Now, you're hanging from the cross, and the pain is terrible, and, and, you're, and the, only way you can, the only way you can breathe and talk is to push up. And I breathe as long as I can, as long as I can tolerate the pain, as long as I can tolerate the suffering, and then I fall back down. But when I'm back down, I'm in a deep state of inhalation, I can't breathe, and I can't breathe, and I can't breathe, and I'm suffocating. And it's horrifying not to be able to breathe. And then that moment of that human experience, the body says, the only way you can sustain life is you've got to pull and push and do it again. And not one hour, not two hours, maybe three some, some have said maybe six hours. Christ is on the cross. And every time he breathes, he's got to do that. And when he speaks, he has to do that. Next slide. As I've just mentioned, there's intense pain interfering with respiration. The weight of the body's pulling down on the arms, the shoulders. You're in an inhalation state. You can barely breathe. In order to breathe, you have to pull and push. The entire weight of your body is on your hands and feet. That is excruciating pain. X out of 
excruciate cross, pain out of the cross. Now, I'll share with you that, you know, there's been times in my life when I did something really not very smart and hit myself with a hammer, and I thought it was really excruciating pain. And I know there's some of you on the audience that have had really excruciating pain, an accident, a car accident, some type of injury, a medical problem, and it's really painful, and I understand that. I sympathize with that. But I don't know this kind of pain. I mean, put your mind to where this is. I'm dangling from the cross. My back is scourged. I'm scraping up and down and back against that. And I'm doing that to relieve the sins of the entire world. Next slide. Jesus spoke from the cross during crucifixion. Christ spoke seven times from the cross. The speech occurred in, with severe pain only during exhalation, and they were short utterances because of the difficulty and the pain of speaking. What are those seven things? Next slide. After being placed on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do from the eyewitness Luke. Picture for a minute. You've just gone through that. You've been falsely accused. You've been accused of blasphemy that's not true. You've been through all those things that I just described. You're hanging from the cross. And you look at the crowd and you ask, Father, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. To the penitent thief, verily I say unto you, today shalt thou be with me in paradise from the eyewitness Luke. Now it's at this point I'm struck by the fact that did this, did this thief, did this person um, do anything in their life deserve life eternal in heaven? No. It reminds me, have I done anything in my life in my life that deserves life eternal in heaven with Christ? No. You heard a really nice introduction. None of that would get me to heaven. What got this thief to heaven? Verily I say unto you, thou shalt be with me in paradise. Because he recognized that Christ was the Savior. In that moment, he recognized Christ is the Savior. He accepted Christ as his Savior. And that was the pathway. Looking down at John and his mother Mary, he said to the woman, Behold thy son. And to John, behold thy mother. Now, as I look across this room, I see a lot of women who are likely to have been mothers. I see some of you that appear to be old enough that you're likely to be grandmothers. I see some of you that may even be great-grandmothers. Now, you picture for the minute that you're Mary and that you're at the foot of the cross and your son, Jesus, is just being crucified. And you picture that birth in the manger. And you picture that she raised him up. She fed him and clothed him and walked him and journeyed him until he was old enough to be on his own. And now your baby is being crucified on the cross. Now, that's just the human aspect of that. And Jesus looks down and says, I'm, I'm leaving I'm departing. I need somebody to take care of mom. It just strikes me in these kind of moments, the compassion, the understanding, helps me to uh, 
to always be able to reflect that Jesus knows our journey. He knows the aspects of our lives because of the things that we know that he went through. Next slide. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now there's a lot of really good biblical scholars in here, a lot of really good theologians in this audience, and I don't really pretend to get close to this one. I think it's a really heavy statement. I think it's really a burden on Christ. I think he understands that he's going to be separated for the Father for a period of time. I think it's really painful. Um, that's what I see in this, from the eyewitness Mark. I thirst from the eyewitness John. Now you know I'm going to be, I'm going to be petty, and I'm going to say, you know, I've been standing up here for 40 minutes, and I'd really like to take a drink of water, and I'd feel so much better, and and then I think, not only is this prophecy, not only was this talked about in the Old Testament, but can you understand how dry, how difficult, how, uh, how much anguish it would be to have been hanging on the cross for hours after everything you've gone through? So human, so, so understandable, so personal, so much like me, so much like us. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit from Luke, and it is finished, written by John, the eyewitness. The thing I want to point out about this is no person, no group of soldiers, no body of people made the decision, the time, the place that Christ died. Christ knew that his journey was complete. Christ knew that the suffering had been complete. Christ knew he was departing, and he told them. I find that incredibly powerful. That he came out of love for us, and he completed that mission, and it is finished. Next slide. Several <clears throat> survival generally ranged from three to four hours to three to four days related to the severity of the scourging. Soldiers often hasten death by breaking the legs below the knees. We know that didn't happen. It's described in the Old Testament. To ensure death, Roman guards would pierce the body with a sword, traditionally a spear wound through the, to the heart, through the right side of the chest, by the eyewitness John at the foot of the cross. Next slide. So here's a picture. The victim's hanging from the cross. And they would take the spear and they would go from the left side of the body and they would impale the chest and up into the heart and they'd pull it back. And if you read the description in John, the description in John says there's water and then blood. Water and then blood. Now you could say, well, gee, doc, water? And I'd say, well, if somebody goes through really serious, intense trauma, pneumonia, heart failure, uh, vehicular trauma, Many of you all know they can form, the body can form a pleural effusion. A pleural effusion, if you actually looked at it, would be yellow. But I'm standing at the foot of the cross. The sky is dark. I'm John. I'm describing what I see. And what I see, as the spear comes out, first water, then blood. I believe that's really accurate. Because the body would have accumulated fluid around the lung, and as the spear goes into my heart and comes back out, the first thing to exit is the fluid. Looks like water. And then the blood would have mixed from the heart and into the fluid and come out, and now it looks like blood. It's just so exact to me. It confirms to me the eyewitness account of John is so accurate. 
confirms to me also that Jesus was dead and gone before the spear entered the body. Next slide. Now there are two ways in which you can die on the cross. You can die of shock. You lose so much blood, so much fluid. Can't pump the heart. Can't survive. The other is, as I described, you could die of suffocation. You just can't push and pull and you can't breathe and you die. Not Jesus. And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost. Luke 23, 46. Next slide. This is my body given for you. That comes from a specific passage. I'm going to remind you we're coming back to the Last Supper. And that passage is from Luke. That's Luke 19, and I'll read. And he took the bread, and he gave thanks, and brake it, and gave unto them, saying, This is my body given for you. This do in remembrance of me. And I will just share with you that I don't think that any tongue, certainly not mine, or any pen, there is no tongue and no pen that can fully express the physical, mental, spiritual anguish that Christ suffered for you and for me. We can try. As Pastor Lemming comes to prepare us for communion, I'm going to share a poem. You may know this as a song, but I'm going to share it with you like a poem because I think it captures where we are at this moment. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss, the father turns his face away. As wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. Behold a man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. I will not boast on anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Why should I gain, why should you gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. His wounds have paid my ransom. His wounds have paid my ransom.